Please turn with me to Mark chapter 6, as we will finish up chapter 6 today, as we continue our study in the book of Mark. We'll be looking at verses 45 through 56, which is the end of the chapter. Before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with us. pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray for wisdom. There was a lot of prayer for wisdom today. And there is no wisdom outside of your word. There is no other place to find it. There is no other way that we can know the truth and that we can then be set free by the truth outside of your word. And so we pray that you would help us to cling to it today. We are so quick to let go of it when something else seems good or right. But we are not a good judge of those things oftentimes. You are. And so, Lord, help us. Show us your way. Teach us your truth. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So as I read this passage, it made me think of someone that I grew what or that I watched growing up by the name of David Copperfield. You guys have probably maybe remember David Copperfield, at least some of you. I'm getting to the age now where it's not like normal, you know, where people don't remember the things that I remember. And uh, so David Copperfield was this magician, illusionist, that's probably what he would call himself, entertainer type. And it seemed like every year when I was a kid, he would have some sort of televised special. And it was this really big deal. Like, what is he going to do this year? You know, he had some sort of giant trick that he was going to do at the end of the show. And there was this really big lead up to it. And it was a lot of fun. He made the Statue of Liberty disappear one time. He walked through the Great Wall of China. He brought this whole boat back from the Bermuda Triangle. But then the boat caught on fire. So it was kind of anticlimactic. All of it was really silly things, right? He didn't actually walk through the Great Wall of China. I know that. But as a kid, he definitely had the wool pulled over my eyes. I was just glued to the TV. Every year, it was a big deal. It was like, when's the David Copperfield thing going to happen? You know, I'd ask my mom, bother about it, because I was just completely spellbound by him. Others have come after him. You're probably familiar. You could probably name them. I wouldn't be able to today. But for my money, he is still one of the best. As I got older, of course, his spell on me wore off. I realize that you can't walk through stone and make giant statues disappear, or at least we can't do that. All throughout Scripture, God performs miracles, makes things happen that normally could not under any circumstances. And the things that God does aren't mere tricks or illusions. They're not even just really cool natural occurrences. They can't be explained by nature, though many would try to do that. They are events that bend and break the laws of nature and physics and everything else because he's God and he can do that. He spoke all things into existence. Now he can tell them how and when and what to do. As we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, even last week as Jesus fed the 5,000 plus people, two fish, five loaves, everyone was full at the end of that, right? The disciples had first-hand accounts of this, literally. They handed out the bread and the fish, and the bottom of their baskets never showed up. They just saw the fish just keep being there, and the bread just keep being there. There was no natural way to make sense of that event. And sometime previous to that, they were afraid in a boat because of a storm. 
They watched Jesus speak to the storm and the storm listened to him. It wasn't a trick. That was a creator, the creator, telling his creation how to act. He can do that. Unlike Jesus, if you read the David Copperfield bio, incredible story, you'll read that he failed many, many times. Almost died several times because of it. Because at the end of the day, he's really just fooling people. Even trying to fool himself sometimes. But Jesus was the real deal. Many times. Even though Jesus is the real deal. Many times. The one who can calm the storm and feed the multitude can't convince us to trust him. We'll see this from the disciples today in our text. And it should show us the states of our own hearts. Show us the way back to the Savior, as we see our sin, and I want you to hear this, every week I'm going to talk about some sin in our lives. I have to, because the text talks about them. But they should lead us to the Savior. If you leave here feeling bad because of your sin, you're probably not hearing me talk about Jesus. And so make sure that you hear the Savior for your sin today. So as we go to the text, let's divide it into two main points. First, the, the faith of the disciple, the lack thereof. And then the needs of the world. And so with that, let's look at the text together. Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 45 and reading through the end of the chapter. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd, or while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored on the shore. And when they had got out of the boats, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region. And began to bring the sick people on their beds and wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages and cities and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. As many as as touched it were made well. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So let's get a context, brief context here. Remember what's going on. John the Baptist was killed by Herod Antipas. And you read in the other Gospels, not particularly in this one so much, but particularly as you read through the Gospel of John, you read that this really had an effect on Jesus. Right? He, he was really upset by the killing of John the Baptist. He wanted to get away to a secluded place after this. On top of this, this, the apostles we read last week had just came back from their short-term mission trip, as it were, and they had lots of stories, and they probably had lots of questions, and Jesus wanted to tend to them as well. So, the, And yet, the masses followed them to this desolate place, and that's where Jesus tended to the masses, as only a good shepherd can. 
And then they were getting back into the boat, and they were headed across, back across the Sea of Galilee, which is becoming a common journey for this group. And at this time, they're getting the boat, and there necessarily isn't a storm, but they did have some difficulty getting to the other side because of the wind. The wind on any lake can make things difficult if you've ever been out in a, in a windstorm. And the Sea of Galilee was, had some particularly difficult windstorms. On top of that, Jesus told those disciples, and just imagine this for a moment, he told them to go on without him. I guess he was maybe planning to take the long way around the lake. This must have been their thoughts. Can you imagine? Jesus, how are you going to get to the other side? Are you going to walk around? Sea of Galilee is not a very big sea. It's not even really a sea. It's just a lake. But who knows what they were thinking. We read, of course, what happened. We've read this story too many times. So it doesn't really bother us like it should. Imagine this dark night on the lake, caught in the middle of a wind, without a motor, they didn't have those things, with only some paddles to get you home. If you've ever been in that situation, you know that it's scary. It's difficult. Conditions are bad enough. Now imagine what it looks like when you have a ghost walking up to you, walking up to you on the water. Again, it seems so outlandish to us that we have a hard time, I think, suspending reality in order to let ourselves be bothered by it. It almost sounds fictional. But it's really happened. When it comes to the text of the Bible, we must come to it with eyes of faith, expecting to be challenged by our normal expectations of things. If we try to fit everything into our own pleasant little realities that we have concocted for ourselves, we will miss Jesus completely, which is exactly what the disciples do here. And sadly, we are very quick to do ourselves. Jesus upset the norms. It's what he did. And for that, we should be thankful. This should cause us to question ourselves regularly. And I hope we do that as we come to the text. So let's look first. At the faith of the disciples, verses 45 through 47. Immediately, there's that word again in Mark. It's all over the place in the book of Mark. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After he had taken leave of them, he went up to a mountain to pray. When evening came, as the boat were out to the sea, he was alone on the land. And so before we focus on the apostles... And their sin, which is our own sin as well, of course. I want to focus on the Lord's quiet evening alone with the Father. Jesus, remember, had just lost his cousin, John. And John wasn't just his cousin. That would be bad enough, losing a family member. But this John was the light that was shining in the darkness, in the wilderness. He was the one who first pointed others to Jesus. Remember from John chapter 1 where he saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was alluding to Isaiah 53. John was the one who prepared the hearts of the people to receive Christ. And now he was gone. For Jesus this would have been difficult, especially knowing what lied ahead for himself, even in his own future. So maybe Jesus needed some extra time alone. He sent the apostles on without him across the Sea of Galilee. To their credit, we need to give them some credit. We often pick on them. They did obey without question. At least we don't have questions here in the text. But as they leave, Jesus goes up to a mountain to pray. 
And I think we would do well to notice this here. Jesus separates himself from the crazy of his life and gets some alone time with his father. Now, I worked for a pastor that every single sermon that he preached eventually got around to the application that we needed to have more and longer quiet times. And a quiet time is just this time spent in communion with the Father, like we see from Jesus here. And it always made me want to have less and less quiet times just because of my rebellious heart, not because quiet times are bad. When I was in college, even, one of the campus ministries that I was involved in seemed to gauge spiritual maturity on whether or not you were having a quiet time. They actually had little charts printed up that you put checkboxes in. Not, not kidding. And the number of missed checks marks was directly proportional to a person's lack of spiritual maturity. I must have been headed toward plain paganism at that point in my life. That kind of stuff is ridiculous, and so don't hear that with what I'm about to say. We do need to make regular time to commune with God. And not only that, we need to make sure the others in our lives have that time as well. We need to make sure of that. If we have believers in the home with us, husband, wife, make sure your spouse has time to spend with the Lord. If your kids are believers, make sure that they have time to spend with the Lord. Fathers need to put their work away. Mothers need a break. Kids need to put their phones down. Absolutely. Because the example here of Christ and many like him in Scripture is that we should commune with the Father, especially when life is in upheaval, like they had here, like we have in our own lives now. But the point here isn't Jesus having a short, quiet time with the Father, but it's the apostles straining at the oars of the boat. So look with me at verse 48. And he, Jesus, saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. Interesting. Jesus sees them struggling, and this is 2.33 a.m., so it's completely dark. Jesus is up on a mountain. We don't really understand what that means. We think of like Mount Everest or something, but it was probably just a high spot in the area. And he saw them out on the lake because, you know, Jesus can see whatever he chooses to see at any time. And he saw that they were straining against the oars. And so he went to them. They're out on the water. Who knows how far away they are. Jesus isn't going to let a thing like gravity bog him down. So he just makes a straight line for the boat. He walks on water. As only the Son of God can. This isn't some sort of trick. Now it says that Jesus meant to pass them by. Maybe he had a reason for wanting to go past them. We don't really know what's going on here. But as soon as the disciples notice him, they cry out. Look at verse 49 and 50. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And they cry out because they think they see a ghost. And, and, and notice here, them crying out is not saying, Hey Jesus, over here, come over here, this, we're, we're over here. Come get us, get in the boat. They're crying out in fear. 
Didn't Jesus just feed 5,000 plus with a little boy's sack lunch? Hadn't they learned anything yet at all that Jesus isn't limited by their views of how things should be? And that's just it, is it not? They hadn't learned yet. How do we know? Verse 52. And they were utterly astounded. They were confused. It's another reading. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. The literal word here is petrified or made to stone. We hear a lot about this in the scriptures. We hear a lot about this even in, in Christianese and Christian talk. About someone's heart being hardened. And we tend to have a general understanding of that. But it can mean different things in different contexts. But to get a good idea of what I think it means here, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, we have this bit. And I may have got my Corinthians mixed up again. Maybe 1 Corinthians. frankly. Sorry. I just wrote down the wrong reference. But I can talk about it nonetheless. Alright, so in 2 Corinthians there is a passage <laughs> I'm just, now I'm struggling with this because I'm is it about the hard, uh, about the ministry of death and I just, no, I'm just going to talk about it rather than prattle on up here. Okay. So this is a passage that we could spend several weeks on, and I'm going to tell you what the passage is when, when we get uh, to Sunday school so I can, uh, can help you with your own study. But what the passage is about is it's about how Moses was sent up on the mountain to get the law. And when Moses was sent up on the mountain to receive the law, he received the law, and when he came back down, what did they have to do to Moses' face? They had to put a veil over his face. And the reason they had to put a veil over his face is because his face shone so brightly that it would have blinded everyone else that was around him. And he received the law. All right, This is the law. And so the argument that Paul is making with this text is, and it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm, I'm stupid. I'm sorry. I saw verse 52 up there in my notes floating around. And I was like, 2 Corinthians 3 doesn't have 52 verses. It does have 18, though. Yeah, it's 7 through 18. And I'm not going to, well, I'm just going to read it. Let's read it. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glories. This is the story I just told you. Which is being brought to an end. What is it saying? The law is something that's going to be brought to an end. Meaning that it's effectiveness. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, speaking of the law, the ministry of righteousness, talking about Jesus, 
must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was brought to an end came with much glory, how much more will, will what is permanent have glory? Now he goes on. He's talking about the difference between the law and what we have in Christ. And he goes on. Since we as Christians have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. There's that word again. They couldn't understand what they might have seen if they were to see his face and see the glory of that. They can't understand what they might have seen. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this comes for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so what do we have here? First of all, we could spend several weeks on this passage. It's very, very dense. The law was given. And so here, Paul calls the law this ministry of death. Because what can the law possibly bring to us who are fallen in Adam? It can only bring one thing. It can only bring death. The realization that we cannot follow that law. Yet, when the law was given to Moses, his face shone so brightly that they had to put a veil over his face. So was the law a bad thing? No. It was a glorious thing. It came directly from God. The giving of the law was a glorious thing. It revealed the glory of the Lord. Even the coming of Jesus, I would say, was revealed in the law. Yet notice why they couldn't see it. Verse 14, their hearts were hardened. They couldn't see beyond the veil. Their hearts were covered in this stone. They couldn't understand the things they were seeing because they were seeing through a veil, through this heart of stone. And notice how that veil is lifted, verse 16. When one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. And so if you go back to Mark chapter 6, how do we understand this hardening of the heart that you see in verse 52? They couldn't understand about the loaves. Because their hearts were hardened. They were unable to see what was really there. This isn't like a child who doesn't understand David Copperfield's tricks. The veil is there due to our sin. The sin that says, that sees the things that Jesus did and says, no, it can't be that way. No, Jesus can't do the things that he's done. He can't calm the storm. He can't feed all of those people. He can't walk out on the water. He shouldn't be able to do those things. The disciples were struggling with that. Now what about for us? Well, in Christ, those of us who are in Christ, we read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and the veil has been lifted in Christ. Now we have access to the ability to see Christ unveiled before us, to see the fullness of His glory, 
Yet so many times we are terrified, just like the disciples in the boat, and we'd sooner believe in ghosts than we believe in the Son of Man can walk on water. The key here is simple and helpful. Notice what Jesus says to them when they're afraid, which is a normal human response, because we're sinful and the veil hasn't been lifted, or it has, but we just keep wanting to put it back down. Notice what he says to them. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now the literal translation of this passage doesn't really make sense in English, so we don't read it that way. But I wish they'd print it anyway, because it would help us to understand it. Because what Jesus really really says here is, Take heart, I am. Now we know that Jesus doesn't choose these words idly. He doesn't just happen to say them. We know that in the Old Testament, God calls himself what? I am that I am. When Jesus says heart, when he says take heart, it is I, he's not just saying to his friends, hey guys, it's me. Don't be afraid. He is attributing to himself the deity that only the Son of God can do. The same Jesus that gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai and caused his face to shine so brightly that it might blind others is the one that's going to his friends out on the lake. This Jesus isn't some worker of parlor tricks. He is the great I am. Almighty God, everlasting to everlasting. Brothers and sisters in Christ, harden not your hearts. The veil has been lifted. See Christ in his full glory. The troubles of this world, and there are troubles, we see them all the time, are nothing compared to the one who walked upon water. His greatest miracle of all was taking ones who were dead in their trespasses, you and I, the disciples in the boat, and making them alive together with himself. Even while we were these stone-hearted sinners, he took our hearts of stone and he made them into hearts of flesh that we might obey him. And he not only removed our sin, but he gave to us his righteousness. We are no longer faced with this ministry of death, but instead we have the ministry of Christ's righteousness in us. So that when the father looks at us, he sees his beloved son. We no longer stand condemned. The veil has been lifted. And so then let us live as if that's true. This brings us to the next point then, the needs of the world. If you want to know why it's so vital that Christians see Christ for who they are, just read the last four verses of chapter 6 or just watch the news. It's the same kind of thing. Just look at the last four verses here, 53. And they had crossed over and they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds and wherever wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. What's going on here? The people were waiting on him again. And it says that they ran about the whole countryside. Anytime Jesus would go anywhere, there were people there and they would literally bring the beds with them. 
because these people couldn't walk. They just wanted to touch his clothes. Jesus, while you're in town, can we just crawl up and touch your garments? You won't even have to know that we're there. And as many who touched him, they were healed. Go back to last week's passage. What did Christ see when he saw the people had come to him on the other side of the lake? And he got out of the boat. What did he see when he looked at those people? He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And he took care of them. And so Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, what business are we in? You hear me preach about this all the time. I won't stop doing it because it's important. It's so tempting today to get caught up in all the politics of the world, all the craziness that's going on. I have pastor friends that do nothing but post coronavirus conspiracies, anti-Biden rhetoric, and it was anti-whoever rhetoric the last time. If those guys are listening to this sermon, I'm calling you out. And I'm sitting here, you're sitting here, I'm calling you out too if this is you. We all have this political garbage coming at us. But if that's all we have to offer people, we're giving them a ministry of death. It's nothing at all. If the solutions that we can give people is better politics or better precedent, we're giving them death. That's no solution at all. What did Jesus offer to the people? Did he go about talking about the ills of the Roman government? He sure could have. Did he talk about how it was against his personal freedoms for a Roman soldier to ask him to walk a mile in his shoes? No, what did Jesus say? When you're asked to walk a mile, instead walk two. To be sure, I'm a fan of liberty just as much as anyone. But when it comes to a lost world, what do we have to offer them in this very difficult time? Will we stand with fists clenched, being belligerent as possible? Or will we break through the barriers with the message of Christ? Our time on this world is really short. It's really short. What do we stand for? We have a hard enough time in Christ, seeing Christ without the veil that we would choose to put down. And so let us, as Christians, not provide another barrier for the unbeliever when they see Christ. Let us be a light instead to the world. Let us offer them the gospel of grace, which we have been so blessed to have ourselves. And so in conclusion, let us, brothers and sisters in Christ, see Christ as he has shown himself to us with unveiled faces. It is a veil that we place there ourselves. So let us remove it. Let us receive him, Jesus Christ, as the great I am, the son of God everlasting. And let us then be a beacon of hope to an unbelieving world. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, it's difficult because we are so easily riled up and we're riled up about the wrong things. We get really upset about silly things and we get afraid about things that we shouldn't be afraid of. So help us to not harden our hearts when we see you, but instead see you through unveiled faces. See you as you truly are, the great I am. 
our Creator, our Redeemer, the one who has called us from darkness and into a new life. And Lord, help us to be those who have that message on our lips and no other. There is no other solution in this world. There's no other peace. There's no other anything outside of what you offer us with the free offer of the gospel. Help us, Lord, to have that message on our lips. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.